0: Please.
1: Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also, become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy.
0: and go over and start thinking about which songs to do and wants to do a song of of her dad's stuff, all right? And then her brother Kelly was also helpful because he had some tapes of some songs that he wanted her to do, like Non Dementic Car and and, uh, Nature Boy and stuff like that, all right? So then I, I start scratching my head and I go to Triad. The agency that she signed with and talked to her head agent and i tell her i said book a tour of her doing her father's stuff in advance i said this will be helpful because if you do it at places that have like the hollywood bowl you know you buy a series ticket so it's, it's not a money problem you know and usually even no matter what what level of artist that they bring Usually the money's the same, all right? So we said, well, why do do that? I said, so if we get a new record deal and there's a new record, they're not going to – we don't need to ask them to help promote a new record if she's already going to be in the marketplace, all right? So I learned this from, you know, why didn't ABC Dunhill give Rufus records to go to Detroit? Because the record wasn't on the radio. Why am I gonna send you to Detroit and pay for the tickets? There's no product in the store and you're not on the radio. That doesn't help us. So I went to try it. I said, book the tour in advance. I'll get the record deal. And the guys patted me on the back like, oh yeah, this is the husband talking. And I said, no, you fuckers, I'm telling you, this is, it's a good idea. We got this going. They didn't listen, okay? In turn, I called my old agent from Rufus, Dick Gallen, who's now a VP at William Morris. I said, Dick, are you interested in Natalie? He said, hell yeah. He said, but Natalie's manager, Dan Cleary, doesn't like me. I said, why? He said, because Dan is more of an agent than a manager, and I'm a better agent than he is, so he doesn't really like me. I said, well, do me a favor. Let's figure it out. He said, and you know, I can't directly approach Natalie if her paper's not totally done at Triad yet okay so because then i'll get in trouble i can't steal her it has to be somebody coming to me free and clear so i time a luncheon and convince dan her manager to meet with dick allen with me natalie her manager and dick allen for lunch all right i set that up because triad like i told you didn't listen they didn't book anything now triad also books whitney houston so, I'll tell you the fallout that happens after Natalie leaves Triad from her husband's suggestion and then mentions to Whitney why. And then Whitney starts questioning Triad. Then they start calling me, making threats, saying that I'm the reason that Whitney's threatening to leave the agency. <laughs> I said, Look, all I am is a husband who advised his wife. I said, The, the, the collateral damage, I don't have anything to do with that shit, okay? So finally, uh, I go to different labels I think about. I make a few calls. No one is into that. Privately, my private phone calls, I'm not gonna tell you who I talk to, but I talk to a lot of people. They weren't into her doing her dad stuff. They thought maybe, eh, maybe it's a novelty around the holidays. But as a new project, no. I call Bob Krasnow, okay? Now, Krasnow I know from Blue Thumb. That's where Tommy LaPuma worked. Krasnow is the guy who signs the Pointer Sisters, then signs Dave Mason, all right? He's eclectic in his brain. The first day at Electra, he signs Metallica and Nina Simone. You got to love a dude like that, man. He's crazy. I call Kras now, Kraz and I used to snort blow at Chasens on Beverly Boulevard in the bathroom while he's, he and I are doing separate business lunches. Okay? So me and Kraz are like old dope partners from, from back in the day, right? So finally, I call Kraz. We're both clean, clean and sober by the time we speak later. And I tell him about Natalie, and he loves Natalie. I tell him the idea. He's on the other end of the phone. He says, what else? I said, what are you talking about? He said, I know you, Dre. What else? I said, well, I'm getting ready to try to hook up Dick Allen, and I'm trying to get the tour booked in advance. What kind of venues? I said, Hollywood Bowl, Wolf Trap, you know, Boston Pops, uh, those places. He said, excuse my French. He said, MF. He said, send her to New York. He said, I want a meeting with her immediately. And he said, bring her here. Let, let, just meet, let, let me just talk with her. And he said, I like this idea. I like it a lot. So I tell Natalie, first of all, she doesn't really know who Krasnow is. So I tell her the whole history of him, the fact of when Mo Austin passed over him for Lenny Warnaker, okay, and the fact that he gave him Electra and he was pissed because he wanted to be vice president of Warner Brothers. And then he wound up at Electra and then wound up signing great acts. And then all of a sudden, now he's in the Hamptons talking trash. All right. But that's the same guy who used to ask me for blow in the bathroom of the restaurant. So when I speak with him, I don't talk with him the same way as ass kissers do. All right. So that's what I'm learning through the music business. So anyway, I talked to Kras, He said, send her to New York. So I get with Natalie. She's excited because her idea... The basic idea for wanting to do this was from her head, not from anybody else, it's just something she wanted to do to say goodbye to her father. All right? So we get the rest. I said, oh, Tommy's involved. She said, Tommy who? I said, Tommy LaPuma. She doesn't know who Tommy is. I said, well, Tommy's a VP there at Electra. I want him involved. She said, for what? She said, I want you to produce the record. I said, I'll produce the record, but I want Tommy involved because if you got the vice president of the damn company uh, and, and A&R is, is one of the producers of the record, all we gotta do is make a phone call for whatever we need, because I know how Tommy is. Okay. And plus by that time, Tommy knows me because he had Horizon at AM. He's the one who signed Brendan Russell for me. You see the one person connection? Yeah. That's where I met Al Schmidt, was with Tommy Lapone. All right, with doing Brenda Russell. And then from then, I wound up living at Al's house. Every time I got a divorce, I lived with Al Schmidt. All right, so now Natalie's, I even told her how to dress. She had a power suit on a briefcase and a pair of glasses. She didn't wear glasses. Because <laughs> I, 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 know, I know what impresses Krasnow, the, you know, the, the kind of women that that make him get off balance. It's not just being attractive, it's intelligent women. He thinks that's a novelty, this is Kraz. So Natalie goes, she's decked, she has the meeting, she calls me after the meeting, she says, I love him, he's crazy, you know, and they talk about it. Kraz calls me back, he said, it's a goal, what do we gotta do? I said, well, you you need to buy the last couple of records from EMI Manhattan. He said, what are you talking about? I said, buy your old catalog. I said, because if this one blows out, you got the other shit to drag along with it, okay? And I said, when holiday time comes, it's a serious package. He said, he said are you a musician or a record company person? I said, no, I'm just a record, record company person in mind. He said, but I'm a musician. So he said, that's an excellent idea. So he goes to EMI Manhattan, buys back catalog. Okay, Miss You Like Crazy, Pink Cadillac, uh, uh, some of the older albums he has. Smart man. He gives me a budget, 400 and change, you know, more if I need. Um, Me and Tommy put our heads together. Schmidt, single engineer. We're missing something. I'm done stuff. Disc jockeys know me for certain things. They don't know me for something like this. Tommy, yes, no. We need somebody else in the mix uh, uh, as far as production. So I bring up Foster. Tommy's not that much into David. It wasn't personal. I just don't think he knew him. And Tommy's impressed with what people do. But Tommy also, he knows so many people. It's like he he just, just wasn't familiar with him. Uh, not the same way I was, okay? Because I think David's first session in LA was with me and Ray Parker Jr. at Bullock Sound, which was uh, uh, Ike Turner's studio, for a group called Cookie and Flat Top. That the uh, the DJ China Smith, who was a popular disc jockey, would would find different artists he tried to produce, and we wound up there playing on the record. Matter of fact, David Foster still owes me twenty six dollars in cab fare from that session. But it was me, Ray Parker, a bass player, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and David, and uh, myself. But so David is, is a pop producer and he's someone whose name is known at radio and associated with people that have done good hits. I said, Tommy, perfect combination. That's a perfect combination. All right. The, the three of us is a perfect combo. He said, well, Okay, fine. He said, but you talk to him. So I talked to David. Then I talked to Brian Avnet, David's manager, and he tells me what the fee is. The fee is more than half the budget of the record for David to do like five songs. I'm like, what? So I got to call David and and say, David, can, can you do me a solid? David did me a solid. He cut his feet out. He was also in the middle of doing the uh, Voices That Care. It was the Desert Storm and there was a song and he had an artist Warren Weeby he was dealing with and some other folks he was gonna make this Voices That Care song. And he was really into that, but he was gonna help me and and help with this other thing. And then Tommy and I picked the fact that uh, we wanted David to do Unforgettable. And the idea from the beginning was only one single. All we needed is one single. We were pushing an album, we weren't pushing singles. So the single had to be unforgettable. Uh, Tommy's prepping me, we call capital, get a hold of the original track to be able to sample it off, okay? Schmidt's involved now, the whole routine. David's bringing Umberto Gartica along to be his engineer. We don't think Umberto's the guy. To us, we need continuity and sound as well, so we want Al to do everything. So that's the first time we put Al and David together, which wound up becoming a good relationship, unbeknownst to David, was, was Al Schmidt. So so finally, uh, what happens What happens from this is we, we pick the song. There was a medley of songs on the first album. I hate medleys. I, I said, give it to Mikey, he'll do it. I gave it to Tommy to do it. I gave Tommy the medley he didn't know I was giving him the shiv but <laughs> but he took the medley and did the hell out of it uh, and, then, and did some more songs then we picked songs uh, f- uh, for, for David to do we picked Unforgettable for David we thought that would be the thing but you know the song the, the sequencing of it the arrangement all that shit was kind of put together before David came we just kind of put it in his hand. And I'm not demeaning him, but the point is, this was a vision that started before everyone else was involved. So in essence, that, that was a, a, Tommy's doing too, because Tommy getting to Capitol. And we found that on the original vocal, there was bass leakage. Because in those days, you know, just like I left my heart in San Francisco, half of the sound of the record is the leakage in the piano mic. All right because I, I produced Tony Bennett too. I found out from his original engineer what the echo was. Frank Laco was the original engineer. I said, how'd you get the echo? He said, it wasn't a chamber, it was some old slap, man. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, we, we got David into it, but because of the leakage, meant that there's a certain way it had to be arranged, you know, like where the instrumental was and how you're gonna do the vocal and what the answer was because of the leakage. In other words, where is the bass in the arrangement where you couldn't take the bass out? So you can't tell the difference between Jim Hewitt's bass and the bass that's in the leakage because we wound up having then to go get something to get some more of the original bass track too. So in Unforgettable, you have no idea that that's two bases, at all. And I'm proud of that. And David hooked up the rest of it. Basically, it was handed to him. And he did a good job by finishing it off. Um, my only thing is, I don't know if those kinds of songs or those kind of productions was necessarily his cup of tea at the time. But let's put it this way. He did a kick-ass job on the songs that he had to do. Um, I, I was just resentful of the fact of, of how, how much initially they were going to charge. That, I, to me, it just... Th- those kind of prices just didn't make sense. You know, it's like uh, for a while, Narda, Michael Walden was charging a lot of money when he was popular. And that only bothers me because you may not be at that level forever. And, you know, and you, you need a medium to, to be able to go to, you know, if, if you're 50 grand a song and then one day nobody's calling you and somebody good rings up the phone, the first thing out of your mouth should not be 50 grand. You know, it should be where you just some kind of happy medium as far as the price is concerned. So anyway, uh, we we put that part of it together. Uh, Al was the 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 connection to all of our all of us sonically. Um, I contracted all the Natalie songs. I contracted uh, through Morris Repass and and and, and Susie Katayama. Every musician I know, every musician by name. Uh, I got a gentleman named Jerry Vinci who was a concert master who had retired. He was on all the Rufus records, all the records my uncle had ever done. Jerry Vinci was the concert master. He had retired. I had to have him. So it took me, it took me a couple of days to convince Jerry to come out of retirement. He wanted to go to Palm Springs and play tennis. He, to get out of retirement, to come do the unforgettable sessions. I got Jerry Vinci. As far as I was concerned, I was halfway home. Uh, I had to find the gentleman who took those uh, photographs of the movie actresses in the 40s and 50s uh, to take the picture of Natalie for the album cover. He passed away not that long after he took that photo shoot. Um, and, and also even the, the video for uh, uh, Unforgettable. Uh, Natalie was going to England to do a, a gig for BBC and I took her and her manager on a little trip. And the trip was to meet the director of the guy who did the aha video where the guy steps through the painting and turns into a drawing.
1: Take on me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I went, I went and found him and got him to do the unforgettable video. So this was all not just being professional. This is helping your wife because when the session's over, I go home with her. <laughs> Everybody else can go home to their, to something else, but when the session was over, for me, it wasn't over. Because when I went home, it was still going on. All right, so as far as the choice of the video director, as far as the the musicians, they were handpicked. Tommy and and I and David handpicked everybody. And even had pep talks with the whole section about the fact that this was a record, what we were trying to do with this as opposed to this is just another date. Uh, we would finish a take and orchestra shows their appreciation by at the end of the take after you yell cut they they hit their bows on the music stand they clap it on the music stand have you ever heard that sound yeah when when 50 people are doing that yes. so I'm standing out there I'm so proud this look on Natalie's face there was no overdose she rehearsed it down or we do it to a basic Rehearsal tape, I recorded everything. Al had a Snoop tape, two-track tape off the stereo bus, always going, case an idea, something happened. We captured everything, okay? Al mic'd the shit out of that place, all right? And and Natalie was on point for every song. Only thing she got mad about is a couple of times she felt a little tired and she thought she did a few things that weren't stellar while she was with Tommy. And she got mad at me, and I knew why, it's because knowing Tommy, Tommy didn't know when she wasn't 100%. He was just so impressed with her. She got mad because he didn't catch her. Okay, so I would bust her. <laughs> no, we gotta do that line again, you know? And you, you have to have somebody on your ass, especially if you're doing line because you don't want to overdub. Because the energy, you have to match the energy and that moment's gone. So Schmidt, Schmidt and all of us, what we tried to do is capture those moments. We captured a performance instead of manufactured one. And so when we were done with this all, and David was happy, you know, he got, he got pissed at first because, you know, when Al took it over to mix it and, uh, you know, a, a couple of things that happened, but, but, but David's not a producer who sits through the, the mix. He's got Umberto, whoever he uses, and even the engineer I used, Woody Woodruff, I stole from David. That, that David's kind of a guy that when it comes time to mix, he just kind of leaves them alone. He just goes somewhere else for a minute. I'm a musician, engineer, producer. When you start mixing, I'm right there sitting in a chair. OK, because I'm there on behalf of every soul that was involved in the recording. OK, and just because you're an engineer doesn't mean you're in the minds of a musician. All right. The only one who got close to that, who I totally trusted, was Al. Al's reading the chart as he's recording. He, he knows which bar to go back to. He That's the kind of guy he was. He was on point. All right, so the whole, the whole atmosphere was, was, was great. People were appreciative of each other. Natalie was, was, was so much on point uh, um, emotionally as well as musically. Um, things started on time. It was like, it's, it was a great occasion. It was a great occasion. Plus those were the times too when everybody was going to samples. That's when everybody was using a lot of samples. And a lot of those string players weren't that busy. So all of a sudden, you know, 35, 40, 50 orchestra musicians get called through the door for more than once where they're working for a week, that's, that's pretty good. And not only that, but uh, Natalie's manager, Dan Cleary got mad at me because I wanted to list every string player on the credits. And nobody lists the players. They'll list a concert master, you know. I said I want to list everyone's name. Well, it costs this X amount of money. And I said, you know, spit this money on this much money on the record. It's not going to cost you that much more money. Plus, got right a first refusal, got right a refusal on the uh, 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 mastering when it goes to be pressed. In other words, we are the ones. Me and Tommy and Al and Natalie are the ones who approve the pressings, not the record company. So the first pressings they did, about 30,000, we refused them. Because what they did is they copied the master sent by Doug Sachs in the Mastering Lab. We mastered with Doug Sachs. Okay? Sent it off. They made, a, they made too many multiple copies of it. And when we heard the first pressings, they were from copies of copies. We said, no, if you need more mothers made, we'll send you fresh from Mastering Lab. That was in the contract. Yay! So, sonically, that shit was on point, and we didn't know what it would sell. We didn't know who the hell would like it. All we knew is that we did a good job. We did a good job. We were proud of ourselves. We were very emotional. Natalie was satisfied. Let me tell you something. If you can make your wife happy about something that's in her professional realm and at the same time is also saying bye emotionally to her papa, which she misses badly, to me, I was very proud of, of, of being able to do something like that. That's on a human level. That's not on any other kind of level. Regardless of what happened to our relationship or anything else that happened, you, you, you couldn't beat us together. You couldn't slip a piece of paper between us. Um, she was on point and I was on point and she knew it. It's like walking down the alley, we both kick your ass. And that's what I, that's what I got from, from Nat when we worked together. She was a consummate professional. She came with her a game every time, and her and Al became great friends and I love that because Al was my buddy so when she she when she became friends with some of the people I thought were really good folks, that also made me happy too. So even after we we got divorced, we still stayed in contact, but also we still were still hanging out with similar cool people. In other words, some weird folks didn't start coming into her life, you know. Because that, that was a problem we were married to. There was a lot of folks who'd come back around from old, old, weird times that I didn't want in my house because I had children. So we got, we'd got gotten arguments about that, you know, and that my all my kids had a mom. So it's like, you can't be their mother, but you, you have to be a certain way for me as the dad around my children. And I was that way around her son, Robbie, because Robbie had a lot of things... That were ailing him, that he needed dealt with, and more than medication, especially the scoliosis, and uh, uh, it, it was more than ADHD. It was it was there was a lot of things mixed together, and and asthma, and uh, too many medications with prednisone in it, which had sped his heart up, and he had a slight heart murmur. So there was there were there was things piling up you have to really focus on him and that was natalie's only child and um not that she wasn't a good mother she just needed more experience in just mother and but yet there was still some issues she had from her own childhood so there was a lot of stuff to be dealing with Half the people i know need to be on therapy <laughs> and then even is this is really funny one time natalie and i we go to a counselor or a therapist and, you know, we're going through some stuff, uh, whether to stay together or, or, you know, what the hell are we doing? So we're with this therapist guy and I can see this guy, he's kind of enamored with her. And I'm like, ah, I don't need that. As a doctor, you have to be kind of neutral, you know? And so after about two, three weeks of us going to this guy, and then me seeing him, um, I have to have a talk with him. So I sit in his office and I said, look, you're trying to make me all right for her and not for me i have to be okay for me before i can be cool for anyone else so i said it's it's like you, it's like you're her representative trying to make me cool for what she needs from someone else i said that's that's not how it works and then he kind of caught himself and and then I said, you know what? I'm going to recommend that Natalie and I, you know, not see you any longer. I said, you've kind of crossed the line. It, it's it's not too cool. And I said, and, and, and if any of your conversations are of our private conversations have, have have been shared, that's not too cool either for you to try to get in the good graces of my wife. And she told me, she said, you know, he was saying some stuff she didn't think he should have been. So he was iced, right? And then we still separated. A couple months later, Natalie calls me and says, can you come to the church? Because her brother Kelly had passed away from from AIDS. And uh, she wanted me to come sit with her. She was really messed up after Kelly passed away. And uh, I went to the church and we both sat in the pew together. And uh, um, she was a sweetheart, poor thing. She she was uh, commiserating about her brother. And I as I was in the church, I acknowledged all the relatives and all the people. You know, everything was fine. And then what was funny is I looked back about four rows to my right. There's the therapist sitting back there. Okay, so he had to have been invited. In other words, he doesn't know with his family. So I'm like, okay, so he finally did get the gig he wanted. So this, this guy tries to date her. And I'm like, boy, is that unethical. So finally, it, it didn't uh, amount to anything. Plus, at that time, it was none of my business anyway. But it's just the scrutiny of some people when folks are going through th- their not good times. You know, the time to not want to try to manipulate somebody, you know, it, it, you try to do that at their most vulnerable time. So mm-hmm. I, I, I learned a lot, in, in not just the music business, but that the vocalists and all the folks I've dealt with, when a singer is in the studio, they're their own instrument. It's enough for me as a drummer or trombone player, trying to get the confidence up and the practice and the due diligence to put what I do outside of my body onto an instrument that's not connected to me. You know what I'm saying? I can imagine what that must be to be a vocalist. I'm like a closet vocalist. I think maybe that's why I've done so many vocalists or or it's from my mom. My mom used to make me play brushes on a magazine while she sang at the kitchen sink. And she'd always talk in music in terms of uh, textures and colors. Her explanation of music was totally different than a tactician or my dad telling me exactly what the flat five was, you know? I learned actually more about the feel of music from my mom than I did from my dad, who wasn't necessarily more technical, but he just explained it that way. So uh, I I find that uh, emotionally, that's a very serious life to lead, to put yourself out like that, you know, and to communicate through your voice and how you feel. And it even gave me more respect for Natalie and for Shaka. Uh, and for some of the other vocalists, or like Gladys, I work with Gladys, and Gladys is like she, from the first note to the last note, she's 150. You know, even if she's singing in the shower, it's 100. You know, people who just that's I'm just very impressed with that, and I'm and I'm very appreciative of it, and I truly enjoy it, and I'm very lucky and blessed to set in Nina Simone's house in Aix-en-Provence outside of Marseille. You know, as we're drinking wine and she's telling me stories about Earl Barrow, the prime minister of Barbados, that was keeping her in the government house when she ran away from her husband in New York who was beating her when he got drunk. And that she stayed there and she was going with the prime minister who was married and he was Catholic. And, And Nina kept saying, I want you to leave... She got all diva on him and said, I need you to leave your wife. He said, Well, if I leave her, I'll be divorced and I'm Catholic and I might not get elected again to this position that I have. So she got pissed at him and left. But while she was there, she'd make breakfast for him when he'd come by for his encounters and he'd sit at the piano and play Folks Who Live on the Hill. That was his favorite song. So here's years later now, and come to find out that he did get a divorce called her up to ask her to come back and to marry him. And when she's getting ready to come back, he dies the next day of a heart attack. Okay. So as she's telling me about Earl Barrow, years later after he's been dead, and here I am getting ready to produce her album, she's telling me about Earl Barrow, and I already knew the story about the song. And then this is a lady who I knew a little bit, you know, know when you get introduced as a producer and you're gonna go through pre-production the whole routine. Now she looks at me and she begins to weep. But the weep like a woman at a funeral, that, you know, uncontrollable sobbing. It was about Earl Barrow, it was about her life. Because she'd gone home also to visit her father years later, stayed in the hotel where black people couldn't stay when she was a kid. Top Suite sends for her father. Father sends message back, you gotta come see me. Well, she took that the wrong way. And since she's Miss deal. So for four days, she refused to go see him. Fifth day, he dies. He didn't come to see her cause he was sick. She After that, it crushed her. Then she went to go try to find psychics and people trying to say goodbye to him, all right? So she's had some problems in that area. She lives with uh, uh, Miriam Makiba in Ghana, okay? She goes and lives with Miriam for a while. And then she leaves. She's now dating a a black man who owns this part of the small rubber plantation, all right? And she dates this guy, and she's thinking about marrying him. Well, she leaves and goes to Montreux, Switzerland, to take her daughter to boarding school, comes back. There's been some evil there. The guy's dead. So all these people in her life, all these tragedies, so they all culminated in that day with yours truly, sitting there talking to her on her living room floor in France about a song. It all fell on her. She was supposed to be bipolar, which I don't believe, but they tried to give her some kind of medication for it. But on top of the medication, she's drinking two, three bottles of Beaujolais a day, smoking two packs of jetons. Okay, so she's, she was hardcore, man. So at that moment, she totally broke down. I I could see it was flooding out of her, all this emotion. And here I am, you know, Francis Fisher's son, sitting on the floor hugging Nina Simone, telling her that if she hadn't experienced these things with Orobaro from Barbados, that he lives on through her. And she must remember that. And we must do that song. Folks Who Live on the Hill. And on the album, I want you to dedicate it to him. She said, I can do that. I said, yeah, we'll put it on there. If you listen to Single Woman by Nina Simone on Elektra, put on Folks Who Live on the Hill, there's a dedication to Earl Barrow by Nina at the front of it, all right? So that's from sitting in the floor with her, going emotionally. And then when she wanted to come sing in Los Angeles, She wanted to sing in front of a 40-piece orchestra. I said, Nina, I'd rather put the orchestra behind you with you playing piano because you give yourself what you need on piano. We need to follow that. And she, no, she wanted to be, you know, sing in front of the orchestra. And I knew there was going to be problems because who do I get to accompany Nina who she'll be satisfied with? So I call, guess who I call? Wendy Melvoin's dad, Mike Melvoin, Okay. Mike Melvoin's not only as jazz pianist, but he was president of the Grammys before there was a paid president. And also it was chapter president, LA chapter, which I was president of, of the Grammys, all right? So I called Melvoy. He said, Nina, he said, I know Nina's style. I said, well, I need you, Mike. So Mike came to play, she loved him. She loved him, I lucked out like a big dog. John Clayton, I got on bass and got him to do some arranging too. I got some different people that she was just, she was happy with. Okay. Then I brought my old teacher, Richard Evans. He comes out and arranges a couple of tunes. Then I get Jeremy Lubbock, the arranger, to arrange the rest. All right. So I surround her with good things. All right. We go into the room. She has a problem singing in front of the orchestra. I do too because of the leakage. Guess who's the engineer in the booth? Al. I take Al with me everywhere. <laughs> and and so, so Schmidt's there. And uh, this was at Ocean Way, this Allen Side studio in, in Los Angeles. And um, so we go into the vocal room, the one that has good vision where she can see everybody and the conductor. She wants me to stay in the room with her. Okay. So now I'm in the room with Nina Simone. All right. Standing beside her. She's holding my hand, digging her nail in mine. Hand. she's scared to death okay it took a couple takes and 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 uh, uh a little vino but i eliminated the medication for a couple days that she was taking supposedly for whatever this bipolar was and i cut down her smoking too because she was starting to sound like arthur prysok okay so i went through that with nina but after that nina and i became Friends, that that was like my friend. I didn't do a project. I made a friend. So tell viewers what year that was about. Uh, that was ninety two, ninety two, ninety three. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd done Tony Bennett yet. I think I'd done Tony already. And then it was Nina for Electra, which was Krasnow. So uh, Krasnow sent Car- Carol Childs. Uh, was doing A&R with him, and she's the one conducted meetings in the LA office of Electra, and different producers had gone through there to audition for Nina for her to see if she wanted to use them. And apparently 10 people had been through before me. But what they they didn't read they didn't do research on her. See, I do research on people. If I'm gonna do a business meeting, I do research on them. So I did research on Nina and knew the story about her husband. I knew some of the musicians that had worked with her. I had some conversations. So when I went to speak with her, I didn't go to speak to the diva because that's when she would shit on your head. When you patronized her, that's when she would take advantage of you because it it upset her. Because what she really wanted to be talked to as, is respected, is as a pianist and as a professional musician. Because that's when she was rejected years ago at a music conservatory in Philadelphia, refused her, okay? That hurt her psychologically every sense, okay? Because of that rejection, where she felt it was because of her color, not because of the way that she played. So she was trying to prove something from that day on. That makes for a strange uh, constitution when you do those kind of things and it can go off rails and become diva sometimes. OK, so what I did is spoke to her in French, first of all, because I knew she was living in France. And Nina loved, she felt like Dexter Gordon. She felt like a, like the expats who'd moved to Europe when they were mistreated in America, or like Josephine Baker. She felt like she had that uh, uh, civil rights attitude about talking about France. So I said, bonjour, it, it, it's it's so long. I start talking to her, and she was like, oh, shit. You know, and then uh, we talked about some mutual people, but I talked to her as a drummer talking to the piano player. I didn't talk to her like the diva singer. That's why we got along. I never went to the diva side. I never patronized her. My father said don't be too enamored because your job is not to kiss somebody's ass. Your job is to tell them when they're on point because you're, you're there like a tailor to make a suit that looks very good when it's done. So I'm an accompanist. That's what I do. Did
1: you ever run into the opposite where you had that approach and somebody wanted you to approach him like a diva?
0: Of course, Dusty Springfield until the night she called me from the hotel. She had OD'd and asked me to come get her. I had to call the ambulance. She almost killed herself that night. Okay. Uh, Because I wasn't putting up with it. Uh, Basically, uh, Dusty was gay, didn't want anybody to know. And she had a young lover from a group called Rough Trade up in Toronto. And Dusty had been living in Canada for a while. So Dusty acted like what I'd seen in older men with younger women, because I didn't have gay people to compare it to. I I didn't know that many older gay couple with a young partner, I I just didn't know. I I only had a man and a woman to compare it to. So I, I saw... Her uh, jealous of the younger lover and worried about her promiscuousness. And that uh, she had an older uh, lesbian friend who would come by and visit. And I always look forward to her friend coming by because, you know, even though this gay lady was sharp, she wore men's clothing and she had some badass shoes all the time. So I always loved to see her. She was very kind to me. But when she'd come to hang with Dusty, she kind of, cooled her out, you know, but, but Dusty, she had, at first, you know, I was supposed to treat her like the diva, and when I treated her like this is a professional thing, and we're all professionals here, my father said, if you fill a room with generals, nobody's trying to lead the room, everyone knows their assignment, and that's the way I tried to do it, but Dusty was different. I didn't patronize her, but I did go off track. Especially when when the depression set in and she started drinking the wine and and accidentally kicks over a you know a twenty thousand dollar microphone you know a lot a couple of things happened where she got kind of out of hand and I also saw that I was giving her um, an environment which was not only conducive to creative but it was safe. She was not being judged. Her friend would come by and uh, there was a couple of biker girls that would come by some pretty pretty rough ladies that would come by and hang out that she knew too. But all I'm saying is I encompassed the atmosphere and it didn't become a circus, it became very friendly and there was always good food and, and positive people around. I, could, I did that by the choice of the musicians, the engineers, you know, whatever support people were. So that was a good environment. But what I was doing is I had conversations with Neil Portnow, who was my boss at the time, who's president of 20th Century Fox Records. And I was vice president of uh, uh, writer production for the publishing side, a guy named Herb Eisman. And I worked with a gentleman named Ronnie Vance, uh, who wound up running uh, Interscope Publishing and Geffen Publishing. And uh, it's Kenny Vance's brother from uh, uh, The Singer. Kenny Vance had been with uh, Jay and the Americans, which eventually wound up being Steely Dan. So like I told you, that one person again. So anyway, I worked with Ronnie and uh, and sometimes for Ronnie because he was really ahead of me as far as writer development was concerned. We, we signed Bruce Hornsby. Uh, Ronnie went and saw him at a club in, in uh, 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 Myrtle Beach called the Soul Basketballs. And it was Bruce Hornsby and his brother was helping him write the songs. We had James Ingram's publishing. Uh, we had... Uh, Joseph Williams, which was John Williams' son, uh, who wound up singing with Toto. We had different people, we had their publishing. We even had the publishing to Rhinestone Cowboy. That company had a lot of great songs in it. So I, I wound up uh, doing, doing that kind of stuff, uh, but with, with, uh, with, uh, with Ronnie and, and developing these writers. Uh, but, but the deal is, is uh, as, a pro- as a producer, the producers started being dependent upon more in certain years to come with everything. You know, a lot of singers could sing great, but they didn't write songs. So it was the producer's job or the A and job to come up with the rest of the package, to find all the pieces to add and put together. So I'd been trained in that area as, as well. But Dusty, uh, Dusty, I'd gotten to sing on "It Goes Like It Goes." which which was the theme to Norma Rae uh, with uh, uh, the girl who played Gidget. Sally Field. Who Sally Field was in. And uh, David Shire wrote that song. And it won an Academy Award. And David's Talia Shire's uh, brother, remember? Angie, hey, here's a look! From uh, Rocky. Rocky yeah. So I, I had the song, It Goes Like It Goes, and I and I did a version of the song for the Academy Awards, and it was released as a single with Dusty. I got Dusty because at the time she wasn't on a label, so it was cheaper to be able to get her to sing on it. Neil Portnow gave me the money. I found her in Canada. I recorded the song, recorded a B-side, mixed it in Los Angeles, and and put it out. And then uh, when, when Neil said, wouldn't it be great if, If Dusty could do a record for us, that's when I went and convinced her to sign and her manager with 20th Century Fox to do an album. So that's when I went to do the album. But what I was going to say is, is the environment that I created for Dusty, because of her ailments and because of her mental state, wound up giving her more protection by working on the project than she had in her own life. So she started depending upon the process to be her purpose every day. And that elongated the process and kept spreading it out. She kept finding reasons to keep working on it, you know? And I'm saying, Dusty, it doesn't take six months to do an album. It doesn't take this long. So Neil was like, Dre, what's up? I can't keep funding this if I got nothing to sell. And I said, well, I've already got, you know, eight, ten tunes on her. He said, well, you've gotten farther than most everybody else who's dealt with her. I said, that's not the point just to get a certain state and then it's over with. But then that's when, when I told Gusty we're going to have to start closing it down is when the, the, the suicidal things start popping up. And then also then it became very acute as far as her relationship with her young lover in Canada. So, I mean... of that project was psychological. 80% of that was me being a shrink, not a record producer. So there's a lot of jobs I've had where uh, I've been totally qualified and totally unqualified, but still having to make heads or tails of dealing with these other human beings that their precious balance was, was was in the mix you know, and that their music became, you know, part of what salvaged them, okay? And that's also the project where I had to go to Canada and find this keyboard player that played with Cat Stevens. Dusty sent me there to find him because she could, she wanted to write songs with him. And then also I did an Elvis Costello song. So I had to go find Elvis and I talked with him and made sure it was okay to record the song. And, so, I mean, you know, Dusty took me through a gamut of things, but I had to go through all that to, to wind up making that record. So that's what happened with, with, with Dusty. So not only was it wanting the diva treatment, um, the way we made up for that, instead of treating her like a diva, we just created this other environment and brought in some nice key people. And basically, she didn't want for anything in it, musically or food or anything else. So, in other words, I kept eliminating reasons for there to be a problem. So I've had to do that to be a troubleshooter and put out fires as well as somebody who was only concerned with the music.
1: There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkandstuff.net. Thank you very much.